You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. In most of the episodes on this podcast, there are a handful of wonderful nuggets of wisdom to be drawn from each guest, their life and experiences. But in many ways, today's episode is almost a masterclass from beginning to end in how to bridge the gap between being an artist and an entrepreneur. Ashley Danu is a musician and educator who shares how she has had to branch out in many different directions to build both an enjoyable and sustainable career. We're taught that there's this one ideal path and there's a destination, there's an arrival point. This is what success looks like and this is what you have to be and to do in order to achieve that. And we all know that that's not actually what it looks like in real life. Hello and welcome to another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, or Win Me for short, one of Feedspot's top 15 theater podcasts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and each week I explore the realities of a career in the performing arts with fellow creatives, challenging the notion of what it really means to make it in this business. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com. There you can sign up for the monthly Win Me newsletter, as well as show your support for this podcast by donating and getting access to bonus content only available to supporters. All that and more at whyillnevermakeit.com. Even before the pandemic, the life of any artist was one of constant change. Times when you have more work than you know what to do with, and then other long stretches of time where you have to take other side jobs just to keep going. For centuries, the term jack-of-all-trades has been used to describe an individual who knows a variety of skills and is able to bring these disciplines together into a practical and ideally profitable manner. Even the history of that phrase, jack-of-all-trades, is an interesting one. It was English author and dramatist Robert Greene who first used the phrase in a published pamphlet from 1592, dismissing and attacking William Shakespeare as an actor who thought he could write plays. What's also interesting is that Green's attack is the earliest known mention of Shakespeare's work in theater. In more recent years, though, jack-of-all-trades has become synonymous with another term, multi-hyphenate, especially when it comes to actors and other artists who branch out beyond their main creative focus. But... In my conversation today with Ashley Danu, we will be talking about yet another term, the portfolio artist. A few years ago, The Guardian wrote about the need for more portfolio musicians. The article says, As 21st century professional practitioners, a musician must not only excel as a performer, but also as a teacher, leader, and creative collaborator across a range of styles and genres. It goes on to say that artists and musicians are increasingly engaging with people, places, and digital technology, producing all sorts of environments for creation and performance, with an ever greater blurring of boundaries between art forms. Now, in addition to all this artistic creativity, we must also be entrepreneurs, who thrive as much on the business side as we do the performance. (laughs) Now, now that, of course, can be much easier said than done. 
especially during times like this past year with the pandemic. Ashley even had her own devastating setback a few years ago when she lost her voice completely and had to learn how to just speak and sing again. Through that experience and others, Ashley learned how important it is to pivot throughout our careers and find work in a variety of ways. And so in today's episode, she shows through her own experiences as a teacher, musician, and performer, how each of us can blend the creative and corporate halves of our career together in a more seamless and sustainable way. All right, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's so wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. When was it that you first realized or that you saw yourself not only as an artist, but as a business person, as as an entrepreneur as well? I remember being at Eastman for grad school, the Eastman School of Music, and they have uh, an arts leadership program. And I was always really interested in that as a as a parallel track to what I was doing for my degree program, also taking these courses in leadership and business and and developing an entrepreneurial mindset. And it intrigued me. I didn't really know, I wouldn't really have been able to explain to you what an entrepreneur was, I think, at that point in my in my life, in my career. But I think I always had that spark. I always knew I wanted to do multiple things. I always have been independent and kind of enjoy uh, building my own things and and being my own boss and and making decisions that way. So I think deep down, it's always been there. Uh, My dad is an entrepreneur. So it kind of runs in the family, I guess, not not in music, but an entrepreneur still. And so I think grad school was kind of a turning point for me in, in thinking, how could I make my own career path? How could I apply these skills and this mindset to the work that I want to do? Yeah, because uh, artists, musicians, actors, we, we all have an, an inkling of of the business side of it because, you know, we certainly fall in love with the the performing, the the musical side of it, but then we need to get jobs. So that's part of auditioning <laughs> ourselves and, and looking for that. So there's at least that inkling of it, but then actually becoming a, a business and promoting ourselves and finding other work, maybe going into teaching and coaching. There, there are many avenues that we can go. And for you, I, I assume it was kind of a one step at a time as you became this musicpreneur, as you call it. Exactly. Uh, and I think that's that's the idea of the portfolio musician and maybe the portfolio artist in general, no matter what your your niche is within the field. Uh, thinking about the different things that you can do, the different skills you have, the different interests you have, and how can you piece together these different things into a whole career. So for me, I was interested in my piano as my primary instrument, and I was interested in accompanying, and I was interested in church music. It's where I got a lot of my music education growing up, and I wanted to continue that work and um, have those opportunities as part of my career. But I also loved teaching, and I knew that I wanted to you know, build up a private studio, piano students. But I knew that I didn't want to do any one of those things full time. <laughs> didn't want that to be the only thing I did because I knew I would get burnt out just accompanying all day or just teaching all day. So I knew I needed to a balance. I needed a little bit of accompanying and then a little bit of teaching and then a little bit of, you know, creative entrepreneurial building something kind of work in there. So uh, my husband and I built or or started a chamber music festival after grad school in the little town that we were living in. And so that was kind of our entrepreneurial work at the time was putting on concerts in the town and and inviting 
friends of ours from from other places to present and and to perform and that in addition to then teaching you know my 12 or 15 piano students and having a part-time church job kind of felt like at that point in my life I was kind of feeling what what it feels like to have a portfolio of different things and different kinds of work and it, it kept things fresh and interesting it kept my creativity sharp I think to have different types of work to do in a, in a given week and not feel like I was just doing the same thing every day. <laughs> <laughs> right. And in each of those approaches, I, I assume you kind of had to take a different tactic in starting each of those niches. Yes. Yes. So starting my studio, you know, starting a private studio um, in any any area, piano or, or voice or any instrument really, um, takes time to build up. And so you start small with just a couple of students and then it, it grows and grows. So in, initially it wasn't taking up too much of my time. I had more time to work on other things or build a website, things like that. Um, and then the accompanying piece, you know, can kind of ebb and flow depending on on time and availability. Some parts of the year are bus- busier than others. And so when you're curating a collection of of different things in your portfolio, you can kind of control, you know, how much of one thing you want to do in a certain season or a certain time of year, and then um, adjust the other things as necessary. So I liked having that kind of creative control. And why is it important that that we realize that distinction, you know, between artist and, and business person? And, and, and I guess, what are the downfalls if, if we don't learn to separate the two? I think my husband and I talk about this a lot. The the line, it feels like there's a line between art and business. And we need business skills in order to be successful artists, right? We need communication skills and writing skills. We need marketing skills. We need to know how to present ourselves, how to promote our work, how to share our work without feeling like we're sleazy car salesmen. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I think there's this part of us, the artist side, that just wants to create. And it's it's a solitary activity sometimes. Uh, it's something that comes from within us. It's personal. It's vulnerable. And it's hard then to, to flip that around and be the business owner that's selling it and promoting it because it, it feels so personal to us. Uh, so I think that's something that we have to learn as artists is how to communicate the value of our work and the authenticity behind it and the creativity that's part of it and and know that the work that we're creating is meant to be shared. It's meant to be talked about. It, it matters to other people. And so we owe it to the art, the thing that we've created, the work that we do to share it and to promote it and to tell people about it and invite people into that experience. And I know for myself, and I've even talked to other actor friends of mine, that networking and and that strategy of of building, you know, your business, building your reputation, can be difficult because there's, the, as you mentioned, there's that kind of sleazy side of it where you're like just trying to promote yourself and use this person to get to this person to get to that job, and it, and so how have you found a balance of? of relationships and networking so that it, it seems more organic and less like you're you're using other people? I think my approach to networking has been to try to make it as collaborative as possible instead of approaching it as if the people that I'm trying to connect with can only help me, you know, I'm trying to do it to, to further my own career. It 
try to think of it as more of a mutual, how can I help you and you help me or we work together on something and we create something together. We put our heads together and we you know, build something that doesn't exist yet. And and in that sense, you know, it's it's a form of networking and connection and, and bringing other people in and uh, maybe getting your name out to other people. But at the same time, it's, it's not just about self-promotion. It's about how can we work together? How can we create art together? How can we help each other? Yeah, I, th- I think the, the word you use, collaboration, is, is really important. Because just like we do as, as musicians or artists, we're collaborating with them in, in the rehearsal space and in the performance space. It's important that that networking take on that same feel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so how do we stay in touch with our creative, our artistic side, and not let that business side get in the way of it? I think recently I have been, I've been reading and researching and trying to learn as much as I can about the creative process and creative habits of musicians, but also artists. And I recently read Twyla Tharp's The Creative Habit to learn about insight. She's a choreographer. Um, insight into her process as a dancer and as a choreographer, what what her routines look like, what her habits look like. Because I think having multiple outlets for our creativity is important. And I think, at least in music, and I think this is true in other fields as well, we're taught that there's this one ideal path, right? We, we're supposed to just follow this path and there's a destination, there's an arrival point. This is what success looks like. And this is what you have to be and to do in order to achieve that. And we all know that that's not actually what it looks like in real life. <laughs> yes, yes. It has, you know, there's always a variety of setbacks and challenges that come our way and unexpected, unexpected twists and turns. And that's the truth about being a creative and an artist and a performer is that it's never a straight line. And it's not only about the one thing that you do. For me, this would be the piano. And for a long time, that was my only creative outlet in a way. And I I kind of pushed away other parts of myself that were creative that I felt like uh, took away from my being a musician. And now in recent years, I'm starting to embrace those other parts of myself that are creative because I feel like they're really important. They don't detract from my musicianship. They don't take away from me being a music teacher or a performer, or a pianist. And I think in some sense, they actually make me a better musician because they give me this other outlet to just freely explore and create and play that sometimes I can't do with music because music is my profession. And so to flip that around then, coming out from the other side, how do we maintain productivity and organization with our very imaginative, free, creative spirits? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Structure is hard sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, routines, I think, for me, work until they don't work. So I, I think of myself as a productive person and a routine-oriented person. I get up at the same time, and I tend to start work at the same time and end the same time in, in, during the day. But uh, some days I feel like doing certain kinds of work, and some days I don't. And I think as a business owner, you have to you have to just show up and do the work, even if you don't feel like it. Uh, but I think making time and space for the creative parts of the work as well is important because I could spend all day making tweaks to my website or editing a podcast episode or writing and, or researching a new blog post and I don't have any creative time in there. And so 
it's it's important for me when creating the structure and the routine to make sure that I have my clear cut time for the business administrative work that I need to do, the reading and the writing and and that kind of work. And then I also have the creative time structured in there as well. And I think I can be happy with that that balance. Yeah, yeah. One of your posts that I really liked is staying connected to that creative side and and finding the time to still practice, to still be creative. You know, for you, it's piano. For, you know, whether it's a singer, dancer, to to stay connected to that craft that that got us into the arts to begin with. Absolutely, it's so important. And I think we lose the joy sometimes of practicing because it's it feels like work. Uh, we have a performance coming up and we have to practice and it's it's a chore, right? And my students are going through that now. Like I have to practice. It's like homework. And I think that sometimes just sitting down and, and trying to reconnect with what it felt like initially, trying to reconnect with the spark that got us started on this path in the first place, what made us fall in love with this art? You know, what was it that first inspired us or first really motivated us to get into this, right? And and decide to pursue this professionally. And I think sometimes just, just stripping away the requirements or the expectations of what practice should look like and just playing for fun, um, playing something that's totally outside of what you normally play, uh, sitting in, and picking something out at the piano that, you know, you hear on the radio or, um, you know, just doing something that's fun and something that's different just to kind of keep your creative energy flowing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, of course, uh, you know, artists and musicians, we have a tough career to begin with, but but COVID has certainly made that even more difficult. And what can we do to combat that 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 overwhelm, you know, that that sense of of distraction that we get when times get even tougher? Yeah, this in the past year has been so challenging for so many and for creatives especially, I think it's been hard to feel creative. I think it's it's hard to feel like you have something to say in a world <laughs> that's just so heavy sometimes. And, you know, creativity can feel so light and bright and, and in a dark um, time in our world. It's, it's hard to find that lightness, I think. And I know a lot of creatives that have that thrived last year because they found they found the time at home and the empty calendars and the canceled plans to be kind of freeing in a way because it gave them space to reflect and to think and to listen. I think I think we got quiet for a few months in 2020. Yeah, certainly work-wise, but also just trying to reconnect with, is this really what I want to do? Because I, I, I know so many uh, actor friends of mine left New York or they pursued other business opportunities, j- just trying to make some money. So yeah, it, it was a chance to really reflect on, on what we want out of life. Right, right. And I think a lot of people stopped and asked those questions of, about being on the path. Where am I headed? What path am I even on? Where am I headed? And and is this really what I want to pursue? Is this work that I'm doing that I've been doing creatively and artistically fulfilling for me? And maybe it, maybe it wasn't anymore and, and you didn't even realize it until everything came to a stop. And then you have some time to ask those questions. And so I think some people took that opportunity to pivot. And I think that's important on the creative path of being an artist that we, that we learn how to pivot. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the book, Zigzag by Keith Sawyer. Mm-mm. 
he describes creativity and the creative life as a path that zigs and zags. So instead of being a straight line, like we like to think of things, it's a path that, that's zigging and zagging all the time. So he wrote, it feels good to walk down a straight path to success, but if you're not zigging and zagging, then you're not seeing the world actively and creatively. You're never finished with this zigzag path. It's one that's constantly evolving. It's ever-present change, right? You're moving from one challenge to the next. So I can totally relate to that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Because that zigzag is what can give us, it can spark new creativity. It can, you know, if we're just an actor and that's all we do, but maybe we want to get into musicals or maybe we want to teach or maybe we want to coach others, maybe we want to start some other production company. You know, that there are all these different things that if we're not open to that zigging and zagging, exactly. then we stay on one path and that path can get boring. Yeah, It can become its own routine that then we lose that uh, that creative juice that we used to have. Yeah, it's a great analogy. And it's one that I that I've come back to because I can look back on my own career so far and see moments where I was pivoting. And I, I didn't necessarily think of it as a pivot at the time. Sometimes I did like I am taking a hard left here. And I'm, you know, going in this new direction. But I think pivoting, you know, you're still keeping one foot grounded in something. And then you're turning and moving in a new direction with your other foot. And so I think that picture helps too to make sense of you know what we do in these times of uncertainty and change and how we find our way forward these zigs and zags that that we take through our creative careers and pivoting sometimes by choice sometimes out of necessity they're kind of like mile markers on our path those points of right. making intentional choices to do something to let something go to try something new and just basically to keep moving in your pivoting, as you call it, was there ever a time where, where you found a dead end and had to back out and, and, and go in another direction? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there has been. Um, I, I mentioned church music was really important to me growing up and had a strong influence on me and my music education. And I always thought, I'm going to be a church musician. That's what I'm going to do. And then I moved up north. And there aren't a lot of full-time church music jobs, unless you go to a big city. And I didn't really want to live in a big city. So I realized at some point, I'm going to have to do this part time. And then I'm going to piece together other things in my career. And I did it for a while for a few years in Massachusetts. And then a few years when we moved back to Rochester, served a few different churches over the over the years. And then a couple years ago, I asked myself these pivoting questions. Am I still creatively and artistically fulfilled by this work? Is it meaningful? Is this the path I want to pursue? Is this the work I want to be doing? And the answer was no. It wasn't fulfilling to me anymore mm -hmm. in that particular place. And so I stepped away. I assume that was a tough realization because when you're an artist and the one thing that you love to do is no longer the thing you love to do, that, that can be tough to realize that. It was an identity crisis <laughs> a bit, yeah. Um, because I think when you think about yourself and your career and you have this kind of clear sense of who you are and it's tied to this one thing or one type of work and then you don't have that type of work anymore, then who are you? And are you still the same person you thought you were? And so I had to do a lot of identity work after that. And I th I'm still doing identity work. I think it's something we do all throughout our lives and our careers. Uh, but that was, a, that was a hard pivot for me and one that I made the choice to do, but was 
was still pretty painful um, mm -hmm. to make that choice. So, yeah, because as artists, we can spend so much time, you know, doing the work, looking for the next job. Yet, yet it's important that we keep learning not only about our craft, but as you said, about ourselves too, and really going inward and, and learning about our, our our own wants and needs. Yeah, I mean, I can think of another pivot recently that I had to make that was kind of outside of my control. And this happens too. With life, you have these unexpected setbacks and challenges. And back in 2019, I lost my voice. Now that in and of itself is not a big deal, right? We've all had laryngitis. Unless you're a singer. Right? Unless you're a singer. <laughs> yeah. Or overused our voices, you know, you lose your voice. It happens. But right. This lasted two or three weeks and it never really came all the way back. Never really fully recovered. So then a few weeks after sort of getting it back to the point where I was teaching again and I was singing a little bit, I lost it again. And then a month later, I lost it a third time. Mm. So I saw two ENTs and the second one said that my vocal cords had stopped functioning correctly. This is not laryngitis, but it was nerve damage. Probably caused from a virus. This is pre-COVID, but probably caused by a virus that I didn't even know I had that damaged my vocal cords. So the ENT was hopeful that after surgery and therapy that I could regain the use of my voice, but there was no guarantee that I would recover. Hmm. Yeah, so another identity crisis, right? Would I be able to teach? Would I be able to sing again ever? Was this a totally you know, transformational moment here, changing the trajectory of my whole career? Like, what, am I going to be a musician anymore? <laughs> um, how can I do this without a voice? So Fast forward a few months, I had vocal cord injections. Actually, a year ago today, I had my vocal cord procedure, and they had to do it in both, both vocal cords because of atrophy. And then I had to go through six weeks of therapy, and my voice has come back little by little, but it's never been the same. It's never gotten back to, to where it was before November of 2019. I assume the sound and feel of it is, is different from how you've known it your whole life. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, I have to think about it all the time. You know, I have to manage my vocal use throughout the day. I have to warm up. I have to do recovery exercises. I have to be conscious of tension and where I'm holding tension and things like that. That's, mm -hmm. it's probably been the biggest challenge that I've had to face in my career. But I mean, again, that's what our life as creatives is about is, you know, moving through challenges and, and it's not a straight line. And <laughs> being open to pivots. Um, right. But it made me think of the book I mentioned earlier, Twyla Tharp, because she talked about this a little bit in her book, um, asking people to consider all the different skills they have. And so taking inventory of all the different things you can do. And this might be musical skills, artistic skills, political skills, athletic skills, entrepreneurial skills, and then pick one thing from the list and remove it. And think about what you have left. But think about what you could do without that one thing if you didn't have that one thing anymore. And then what does that say about your work and your art and your potential? And that was a really powerful exercise, I think, to, to think about what it, I mean, what if my voice is not the same, right? So I can't do the things that I was doing before to the same degree. So what if I didn't have my voice? What do I still have? And I think that's an important exercise for for anyone in the performing arts to think about all the different skills that you have. Think about 
what if you didn't have one thing? What would you still be able to do? If one path doesn't work out, if you find yourself having to back up, it's a dead end, um, life throws you something unexpected, an injury or something else, you still have a number of other options to choose from. For you, what was that one thing or, or that first thing that you latched onto once you kind of took voice out of the equation? What what kind of brought you back home creatively? Painting, I think. Hmm. Yeah. I never really painted. I mean, I painted as a kid, I guess. Everybody paints as a kid, I think. But I never painted like seriously. Like I could be an artist when I grew up. I think because when I was a kid, I said I want to be an artist to someone, to an adult. And they said, oh, artists don't make any money. And so I said, <laughs> okay, then I want to be a writer. And they said, oh, writers don't make any money. And then I was like, well, what am I going to do now? <laughs> I was like six, you know. So then for a while, I wanted to be a veterinarian because veterinarians make money, right? <laughs> yes, they do. And yeah. then, you know, it, music was always there. And so music became my art. And that's what I'm going to do. And so I never really pursued visual art until just recently. Um, and I bought some art supplies and I started painting and I found that I, it's this whole other avenue of artistic expression and creativity that I had never tapped into before. And what are you discovering about yourself artistically? What, what has painting brought out of you that maybe some of your other artistic ventures haven't? Yeah, I think it's just, it's interesting to pair it with music, which is such an oral art to then have something that's so visual and so present in front of you and that you can, you can create things and then instantly get visual feedback on that. And so I think it's, it's made me more aware in music. Uh, I see more parallels in music and I, and I think in terms of visual art analogies and, and what it would feel like, you know, I use different analogies with my students like think about painting this you know this phrase um, or what color would be used for this you know section or something and I think it just helps it helps me process maybe a little bit more of what's happening in the music um, I, I see the music on the, in the score a little differently and I hear things with a little bit more color and imagery yeah, I, th I think it's the same whether you're, you know, in musical theater or acting or dancing to, to think of it in another creative medium. It's a different way to approach a creative outlet. You know, let's say you're acting a scene, but you want it to feel, you know, it's a very sad scene. So imagine blue and maybe that can give you another way to approach that scene. Or when you're singing a song, it's bright reds and yellows. And so you want to have that fire. And yeah. so it seems like that these are visual ways to do something that's oral or, you know, or vice versa. Yeah, I mean, there's so much connection and crossover between the different art forms. They flow right into one another. For many artists, there comes that time in their career where maybe they uh, want to share what they've learned. They want to teach or coach others. When does someone know that they're ready for that? I think... It's different for, for each person to know when that, that moment is. I think I heard somewhere recently or a few years ago that you don't have to be an expert at something in order to teach it. You just have to be further down the path than someone else. So I think when you come to a place of recognizing that you are however far down a certain path, maybe you're looking back at where you were at the beginning of the journey and you recognize how far you've come and what you've learned and what you've accomplished, maybe that's a point where you might feel like you have something to share with someone else who's just starting out or who's just getting started on that particular path. 
because that, that desire to, to guide and help others is, is certainly a noble idea. But where do we start putting that idea into action? I think for me, with my blog, it, it started out as writing. And that was, that was my main way of communicating ideas and sharing things was just through writing. And I mean, I actually started my blog in all the wrong ways. So don't do what I did. <laughs> and how was that? <laughs> I started my blog in 2010 when I finished my master's degree. And it was a place to document things. It was a place to just write things down, personal and professional, uh, to share pieces of my life and my work, but also poems I was writing and recipes I was making. And I just wanted a place to just like a scrapbook, put everything. It was just a hodgepodge of everything hodgepodge in your mind. of my life. Yes, <laughs> yeah. personal and professional. But then, you know, I had this church job in a, in a small town and I was the music director and I was starting a children's choir. They hadn't had one for 20 years. And I was looking online for resources, like surely, because church doesn't have a budget for this. It's just something I wanted to do and, you know, there's no money to spend on it. So I'm looking online, like some, surely someone else has started a children's choir and they've put together some ideas, some free music, something, you know, that I can use. And there's like nothing out there. So I'm, you know, a music educator and I'm creative and I'm an entrepreneur. So I make my own stuff, my own resources, and I, you know, pull from what the church has and, and, you know, make my own curriculum and, create my own rehearsal template and, you know, other, other stuff. And then I wanted to have a place to like save it so I could come back to it later. So I put it on my blog where I put everything else. Of course. <laughs> so I'm just, you know, writing for me and to myself basically, but having it live on the internet, you know, some other people found it over the years. And so a couple of years later, I started getting some, comments from people and some emails saying like, this is so helpful to me. Like I'm just starting out. I'm starting a children's choir. I'm starting a piano studio or I'm brand new to teaching music and your resources and your blog has been so helpful to me. And then I realized, oh, other people are reading this. <laughs> Maybe I should write to other people and not like share so much of my personal life. Um, so I kind of pivoted at that point with my blog and how I was sharing content. Did you have to go back and kind of delete some blogs or restructure? Eventually, yeah, I moved it from WordPress, you know, like a free WordPress blog to a real website. And I only carried over, you know, certain posts. But yeah, I've kind of filtered it through the years um, to the point where it is now where it's, you know, I don't really share personal posts on there. It's It's professional. So... Yeah, it kind of changed the way that I looked at blogging and looked at teaching. I, I didn't create a blog to start a business. I w didn't have any intention of starting an online business when I started my blog. And, you know, two years into it or something, I, I started shifting, not to thinking like this could be a business, but just publish it here. And then it can help other people who are, you know, just starting out or looking for resources or don't have the same access to things. So it kind of became like I'm now teaching other teachers. Right. Yeah. You're the teacher to the teachers. Yeah. And, and this is a, an excellent example of, of being open to when, when things come your way, you know, whether, whether it's COVID and it presented people with more time and different ways to, to use their creativity. You had a blog that all of a sudden people are responding to. So you were open to the idea of, oh, maybe if I structured this better, I could actually turn this maybe into a business and, and guide others. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's not unique to music or to 
to my circumstances. I think anybody can do that. So again, you don't have to be an expert. I think there's a spirit of generosity and care for one another that's kind of embedded in the performing arts, that we, we're a community. We care about each other and, and we want to help. We want to serve. And it, it, it's not always competitive and like I have my own teaching method. And I'm just going to keep it to myself. I'm not going to share it. Like I want to share it. I want to tell people when I found something that works for my students, I want other people to try it with their students and maybe they'll find success. And I think that applies outside of music as well. Finding ways to share about your experience and the things that you've learned or are learning. I think by doing that, we break down some of the constructs of what a life in the performing arts looks like. You know, Mm -hmm. we kind of take down some of these walls of I do this or I have this or I've achieved this because of X, Y, Z. And instead, you know, here I am and I'm experimenting and I'm trying things over here and some of it works and some of it doesn't, but I'm just going to honestly share that with you and talk about it. And, you know, I'll learn from you and you learn from me and, and it's collaborative. Because even that term, performing arts, it's not just performing on a stage. There's also performing functions for other people, whether it's teaching or whether it's promoting, marketing. You know, that there are all these other jobs that we can perform, not just on stage. Absolutely. You know, it, we were talking before how artists have to become business people. I would assume in much the same way, teachers, coaches then have to learn to grow and manage a, co- a client base. So now they're having to use a different part of their brain, not just the the teaching and guiding part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just the the creative, you know, let's try this, you know, or, or strategizing um, kind of work. It's, yeah, there's, there's business side in terms of managing. And, and when you're teaching someone else, there's, there's a certain responsibility to kind of ensuring their success, or at least providing some scaffolding for that. So you want to make sure that you're presenting things in a way that makes sense and an order that makes sense, that you're providing enough support, but not too much support, that you're challenging and encouraging and, and balancing these things. And there's enough freedom and flexibility within the structure for them to express their own creativity. Because education means to draw out, right? So rather than thinking, I have all the answers and I'm going to just impart them to you, you will now benefit from my wisdom. It's, you know, drawing out what's already within the person. And that's going to be different for every person you work with. And we work with people, with humans who grow and change and have different experiences. So they're always morphing into, you know, new versions of themselves. And we have to be adapting and following that. You mentioned scaffolding and we ourselves have our own scaffolding, the way that we built up our own artistic skills, but also, you know, being, being a business person. And, and so we have our own path that we were on. But like you said, we need to recognize that everyone else has their own path, a different way that they learn and grow as an artist. And so obviously it's easy to impart your knowledge and your wisdom onto someone else. How do you go about teaching someone else something that maybe is different from how you did it? Yeah, absolutely. I think about my students through the years and the different types of music that they have been interested in that is different than the types of music that perhaps I'm interested in or have ever learned to play on the piano. I was classically trained growing up. I played classical music, but so many of my students are interested in all kinds of music. And the first time a student brought in a piece that like had they'd heard on their radio that I had never heard before, (laughs) I, I really had to humble myself 
and position myself as a learner alongside them. So we're learning this together. And I'm going to I'm going to help you figure this out, but I'm going to be figuring it out right alongside you because I don't know this song and I don't know how to teach it to you, but I can help you learn it by going through the process with you. So it was it felt a little bit more like I'm taking a couple steps back to meet you where you are on the path and we're going to walk this part of the path together instead of I'm, you know, a few steps ahead telling you how to go. That's something that I've heard from other coaches that it's so important to be able to say I don't know and to to recognize places where you're still learning yourself because yes coaching and mentoring yeah we, we we may be those few steps ahead but that's only on certain paths there are other paths where we're not <laughs> we're not that far ahead absolutely yeah i mean no one can know everything especially with how fast the world is changing around us <laughs> And and when it comes to teaching, it, it, it's not just about the material itself, you know, the, those lessons to be learned. There's also the need to, to motivate and inspire. What ways have you found to both motivate and inspire students? I think connecting to things that they are interested in, things that that spark imagination for them or, or inspiration for them in some way, um, connecting to their other interests. So for a lot of them, I mean, just like I was talking about with painting being this other creative interest, uh, I found in talking about that with my students, a few of them, that they also paint. And so that's, that's a way that we can then connect music into something else that they're interested in. I have several students who are interested in um, a certain series of books, you know, and so we'll, we'll talk about what those books are about. And, you know, they're, waiting for the next book to come out and we'll find music that kind of parallels the world in their books, you know, and, and connects to, to what they're reading. So I think that's a huge factor in motivation, finding ways to connect music to their life in some way that's meaningful and personal. It sounds like what we were talking about earlier about networking. It's about collaborating and mm. to see your students as collaborators so that that motivation and inspiration can come organically from that relationship. Yeah, yeah. Now, getting to the to more business side of, of teaching and being a coach, is there a checklist or some type of orderly structure that you used in order to create your own business? For my studio, when I was first starting out, you know, I put together some some materials for promoting my studio. This is what I offer. I had a, a teaching philosophy that I wrote out. This is who I am as a teacher. This is what I value about the process. This is how I think about music. This is how I think about creativity. These are the things that are important to me to try to convey to prospective students. This is who I am as a teacher. And that these are the things that I value because Every teacher is going to be different. They're going to value different things and they're going to focus on different things. I focus a lot on creative expression and individuality. And it's okay if my students don't all play from the same book series. You know, this one wants to play this kind of music and that one wants to play that kind of music. We're all learning music. They're all on different paths, right? Mm -hmm. And I think having a baseline, of, you know, this is who I am and this is where I'm coming from. And this is my approach is important to communicating what you offer and who your services are for. So if you're starting out as a coach or, or a teacher, um, figuring out first who you are as a coach and a teacher, and then being able to communicate that authentically will attract the right kind of people to your studio or to your practice. Um, and then I started thinking about what can I teach? What do I want to teach? What's important to teach? Because there's certainly things we can look back in our careers and think, Maybe there were some things we learned that we we spent time learning that 
maybe weren't really as important as others and maybe weren't as important to us in the careers that we've ended up building as other things that we learned. And so thinking for my students, you know, what's going to be important for them? Is it important that they all learn how to play four octave scales in every key or, you know, <laughs> certain certain technique things or certain repertoire pieces? I have a student who doesn't like classical music. I'm not going to push that issue every year. <laughs> I'm going to try to introduce classical music, you know, little by little or find types of classical music that she does enjoy playing. But for now, we're going to enjoy playing advanced versions of Disney songs because that's what she likes or Broadway <laughs> pieces. You know, she loves that. And they're challenging and they're musical and there's things that we can talk about and that she can learn music through that repertoire that she could also learn through classical repertoire. You know, it's the same. So it's like putting together a toolbox so that then you have different tools that you can pull out and use or give to to the people that you're coaching. Everybody's not going to use the same set of tools, but you need to have a variety of different things that you can have at your disposal to share. And when a student isn't learning or, or progressing, now how do you know that it's it's maybe it's due to teaching and you need to alter that, or maybe it's just a lack of the student and they need to change what they're doing? How do you figure that out? It's a, it's a dance. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I'm always kind of tweaking the way that I present things and experimenting with how I introduce new concepts or how the analogies that I give, the, the exercises that I give, um, trying to, you know, make the experience as active for the learner as possible. So giving them as many opportunities to do and to experience instead of just listening to me talk about it. And so sometimes I, I recognize that some students need to get up off the bench and move and experience it in their full bodies for it to make sense to them, or else they're just going to struggle with it. Some students um, are very strong visual learners. You know, they, they really respond best if they have it in front of them versus trying to do something by ear. Others are very driven by their ears and, you know, kind of struggle with when they have to note read. And so all those skills are important. It's important that we feel it in our bodies. It's important that we learn to read and that we learn to use our ears. So I don't necessarily stop one approach with, with a particular student, but I try to recognize this student, you know, does particularly well with this approach sometimes. So maybe when we're first learning it, we're going to, we're going to focus on that. And then in the weeks after, as we're reinforcing that concept or skill, we'll try to introduce some of those other experiences. And, and does your teaching, does it differ? If you know someone wants to pursue this through high school, then go to college and study it, and then hopefully become a professional artist, as opposed to someone who just wants to tinker around a piano and, and, and play? Yeah, for sure. I think most of my students probably will not go on to be professional, high-level pianists, and that's perfectly fine. They're in a creative school environment. Um, I teach usually, normally, under normal circumstances, in uh, an after-school program at a private school. And so they're in a very um, creative, nurturing school environment during the day. And, and I like to think that my piano studio approach mirrors that. And so I want them to be expressive and creative. I want them to learn how to improvise for just creative expression, not because they're going to be a jazz soloist one day and they need to know how to do this, but because it's just important to have those experiences. And even the kids who feel like that's way outside of their comfort zone, we still do it every now and again. We don't do it every week, but we do it a few times, you know, in a semester. I, I will give them a challenge to step outside their comfort zone and try something. 
my students that are are now getting into high school and are becoming a little bit more serious about music, whether it's music in general or piano specific, a lot of them play another instrument that's probably the, considered their primary, whereas piano would be more of a secondary for them. Um, I do emphasize things like participating in the statewide music solo festivals and things like that, where they they have certain requirements. They have to play a piece of repertoire from the approved state list. They have to play scales. They have to do sight reading. So they're developing these musicianship skills and these expectations, and they're having those more serious experiences in music to kind of prepare them for what that might be like in the future. Right. Yeah. You're gearing your teaching based upon the future that they want to have for themselves in whatever creative endeavor. Right. And for you personally, has teaching helped your own performance or did your performance better your teaching? Is there one that's helped more than the other? I think teaching probably has helped my performance. I mean, I had a teacher in college who who told me I I was not planning to be a music educator or a teacher. I was just going through the ropes on, on the path to be, you know, a piano performance major. I was going to be a piano performer, whatever that meant. Probably in church, right? That's what I was thinking. And he looked at me in my lesson one week and he said, you know, you'd be a great teacher, a great piano teacher. And I was like, what? <laughs> He said, you know, because I asked you a question about this piece that you're preparing and you can tell me exactly the systematic way to practice it, to approach it. You can break it down into very clear steps and it's very organized and structured and you know exactly what to do and how to do it and in what order. And you can explain that and articulate that really clearly. And that's that would make you a great teacher. That's a good skill to have. And at that point, you know, I was not a music education major. I wasn't planning on teaching. I was doing a little teaching on the side because you're trying to make some money, but it wasn't that wasn't what I was going to do primarily. But that moment and that comment from that teacher really changed how I thought about music teaching. And then I realized in grad school, you know, teaching is part, it's a thread that runs through everything that I do. And it's kind of who I am at my core, I think, um, as an educator. And I have this desire to to teach and to help people and to break things down and to show people step-by-step how to do something. And that approach has helped me in my performance because I can break things down and I can examine things, analyze things, and I can kind of teach myself, you know, I hear myself in my head when I'm, when I'm practicing sometimes the things that I tell my students to do, like do this three times before moving on. I'm like, oh, (laughs) my teacher voice in my head, you know, telling me what to do. But I think it I think it does um, inform my performance for sure. Lovely, lovely. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. This has been so great to talk to you and pick your brain when it comes to both the artist and the business <laughs> side of us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much to Ashley Danu for joining me, not only to share her own experiences as a musician, but for also highlighting ways in which we all can teach and coach other artists as well. I also sincerely appreciate you for listening to me and Ashley in our conversation today. If you know someone who you think would enjoy or benefit from an episode like this, then please share why I'll never make it with them. As I mentioned before, another important way to show your support is through donations or memberships. There are special bonus episodes available only to monthly supporters. And one of those is the final five episode, 
where I ask the same five final questions to every guest. Now here's a preview of Ashley's bonus episode coming out on Friday. And that might lead into number four, which is to name a personal lesson that took you a while to learn or maybe one that you're still working on. It's okay to grow slow. I heard that a while ago. And I think it took me a while to fully accept that into my own life and my career because with the rise of social media and how connected we are online these days, comparison is so easy. And just every day we see people who are getting more gigs or winning more auditions or getting more opportunities or making more sales. And it makes us feel like we aren't working hard enough or we aren't good enough or we're doing something wrong because these people are achieving success and it seems like it's it's faster and it's better and it's more for them than it is for us. But the truth is, like we've said, everyone's path is different and growth and success don't happen overnight, even though that's sometimes what it looks like on online. <laughs> so it's okay to grow slow and it's okay to to accept that you're on your own path and maybe no one else is on that path with you and it's just your path. And your path is going to look different from somebody else's path. And you might take longer to achieve X, Y, and Z than so-and-so did. And that's just the nature of, of the creative life and the path that we're on and the, and the choices we make and the zigs and zags that we have along the way. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Publicity provided by Imagine PR Group. And music in this episode by Bortex and Poddington Bear. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time with Damian Thompson as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.